Amen, amen, amen. You know, I was thinking this morning, it, I said it in the first service, and I'll say it again in this service, not that you need to know that I said it in the first service. I don't know why we do that, but we do. Um, but it hit me as Corey was praying in the first service, and you think of all the things going on around the world, and really how much people need the Lord, and how much we need a God who saves. And I just want to say that how we live our life makes a difference in all of that because people see the Lord through us and we can make a difference. I should tell you I'm Pastor Tim. For those of you that are visiting, I'm the executive pastor here at Grace Community Church and um, Pastor John and Shelley are on vacation. If you came to hear Pastor John this morning, you're going to have to wait three weeks because they're on a well-deserved vacation and we'll be back in three weeks. You know, I've been waiting for an opportunity to, to preach a series, um, and so when these three weeks came up, I asked Pastor John if I could take all three weeks, and he said yes. And the reason I wanted to teach the series is because this series of messages that I'm going to preach to you really were, came out of a camp that I was asked to speak up at last summer. It was College Ski Wake and Surf, and Corey had asked me to be their speaker. It was July 18th through the 20, to July 18th to the 22nd, 2017. And the topic that he gave me to speak on was graven images or idol worship. And as I prepared for those messages and, and ultimately presented them, I thought, boy, this is a very real topic in our culture, especially in the Christian community, and I'd really like to preach it to our church. So that's what I'm going to do for the next three weeks. And I think it's a, it's a topic that we struggle with, whether we know it or not. Therefore, I have titled this series of messages, Who Do You Worship? It's really a question. Who do you worship? It was September 1st, 1980. There wasn't a lot special about that day. I actually looked up to see what was going on. Jimmy Carter was president. Upside Down by Diana Ross was the number one song on the charts. Smokey and the Bandit 2 was the favorite movie of the day. <laughs> Nancy Lopez had just won an LPGA charity golf classic. And Sean Stewart, the son of Rod Stewart, was born on that day. There wasn't a lot. I mean, it, it really wasn't a very special day, but it was a very special day to me. Because on that day, I had to come to grips, or I had to maybe for the first time ask, who do I worship? It was on that day that I came to grips with that topic, and it was on that day, the opening day of dove season, between seven or eight in the evening, I had blood and feathers on me from the hunt, and it was on that night that the pastor sat with me and said, Tim, will you... Would you like to give your life to Jesus Christ? And I, and in essence, will you worship Him? Since that day, I have come to believe some things. I love that song we sang this morning, I Believe. There are some things I've come to believe very passionately. I don't know that you will find them that much of a revelation, but especially the, I'm going to share four things with you that I believe very passionately and, and, um, the first one is this, that God is real. He's alive. 
I don't know that we think about that that often, but He is the God of creation. In the beginning, He created. He is not a higher power. He is not some distant thought or being that we cannot be in a relationship with. He is alive, He is real, and He has given us life. The second thing I have believed very passionately is that we are clearly to worship Him and Him alone. The third thing I have come to believe very passionately is that worshiping Him and Him alone is a daily battle. It's something we have to fight each and every day. Why else would the Bible give us so many prohibitions about idol worship if it was not something that we would battle with? If you have your Bibles, would you open them to Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 to 6? I want to read this text to you, and then I'll share with you the fourth thing, and then we'll get into the actual message of the morning. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 to 6. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Idol worship's a problem, and, it, and none of us are inoculated from it. We all struggle with it. John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Tim Keller, a modern-day theologian, said, the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry, which leads to the fourth thing I've come to believe and believe very passionately, and that is this. It is so easy to hear the truth of the Word of God, in a setting like this maybe, to hear it and to be convicted of change, to even make decisions to change, and then walk through those doors or walk away from that Bible study or devotion and forget all about it and to live our lives just exactly the way we did before we were convicted of the change. It's so tempting and it happens so much. So I ask you the question to ponder today and for the rest of your life, frankly, who do you worship? And then I would change it just slightly. Who do you really worship? Who do you really worship? And I put that in there because I think we all know it to be true. We can say who we worship, but how we live our lives says who we really worship. In other words, we can talk again, but if we don't live it, we're in, it's, it's, our words mean nothing. When I started working on these messages for that camp, the very first question I asked myself is, what is an idol? I think we all have an idea what it is, but you know, the topic was graven images. 
And, and I just don't think that term, graven images, is something that we think about very often. I, and so I wanted to look into that. So I went to a, a Bible dictionary, and I looked up graven image in the Bible dictionary trying to see what I could get. And you know what it said? In parentheses, see idols. <laughs> I thought, well, where does even graven images come from? Well, it's, a, it's the, the interpretation primarily in the King James Version of the Bible, takes that word for um, idols and it translates it graven image. It says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So then I thought, well, I wonder how other scriptures or how other versions translate it. In the English Standard Version, it says, You, not, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image. The New American Standard and the New International Version simply translates what the King James translates graven images. Uh, graven image, the New American Standard and the New International Version simply translate it idol. God's Word, that version, translates it, translates it carved idols, and the message translates it as carved gods. So an idol in the context of this passage we just read is something that is carved or constructed and worshipped as God. The term graven, if you take the N off, what do you have? Grave. Something that isn't alive. Something that is dead. And many idols are just that, dead. They're not alive. They're not real things and we worship them as gods. Now, there are some idols that are alive, and I'll share a little bit about those as we go throughout the, the morning, but graven image. When I think of graven image, the first thing that comes to my mind and probably comes to some of your minds is the golden calves or the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. Now, you know the story, I think, so I'll just paraf kind of paraphrase it for you. You know, God God Himself, the real living God, delivered His people out of slavery in Egypt, took them out into the wilderness, He parted the Red Sea, He made Himself known, I mean, process all this, He made Himself known to those people, He appeared as fire and other manifestations, He provided food for them, manna and quail, He did all these miraculous things. And then they come to, the, to Mount Sinai, and of course, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to meet with that God who they had seen so many times do wonderful and miraculous things. And here's how it's recorded in Exodus 32, 1 to 4. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, I mean, think, listen to that term, as for this guy Moses, you know? I lost my place. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. It's kind of funny when you think about it. I mean, the Bible's kind of comical sometimes. We don't know what happened to him. And so Aaron says, take off the, your gold earring that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him 
and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, think about that for a moment. That is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, when you read it, it's like the dumbest thing you'd ever seen. They saw God, and now Moses is gone, and so they create their own gods. It's just crazy. They construct calves and proclaim them to be their gods. Who does that? Well, some people do it all around the world, honestly. Some people do worship those kind of carved idols. But I doubt that many of you <laughs> are constructing, you know, like in your workshops, something that you're going to put on the mantle to worship. I doubt many of you are doing that. But there is far more to idol worship than just that. And this is why I think sometimes we don't think about it much because we think of it in terms of idols as in statues, in statues. And so we need to shift our thinking. And to help us shift our thinking, I've got a little short video to show you. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try it again. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. So idol worship involves so much more than the construction of a physical God. We construct gods in our minds all the time, and we struggle with it. An idol is more than just a physical statue. It's anything that we worship as God and over God. And by the way, the term worship, it's anything that we give more worth to than God Himself. Anything we place above God. And I think most people seldom think about idol worship, but it's very real. Just last Sunday, my wife and I were relaxing Sunday afternoon. We turned on the TV. Maybe it was more towards the evening. We watched a show that I was very familiar with, although we hadn't, we hadn't um, watched it. Uh, American Idol. And... 
I, you know, I, I thought, we've, we've become, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with the, with the show. It's just, we've become very comfortable even with the term idol. We like to watch The Voice. And I find it interesting that they will often ask these contestants, you know, what would it mean if you won American Idol or if you won The Voice? Oh, it would mean everything to me. Well, we do those kinds of things all the time. Magazine racks are full. Magazine racks are full of pictures and stories of people we idolize. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, who wrote the book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, we have recommended that book many times. Pastor John has, I would recommend it to you as well. She says this, one very difficult aspect of sin is that sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels more like life to me, plain and simple. My heart is an idol factory and my mind is an excuse-making factory. Now, I should say before we go any further that the things we have a tendency to elevate above God are not necessarily bad things or wrong. In fact, they are often good things. They are often things we need to have in our lives. They don't become idols until we elevate them above God. Again, Tim Keller said, idolatry happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. So I ask you, who do you worship? Who do you really worship? I read an article as I prepared for this series of, of um, teachings or lessons, and the, the article was entitled, America's Top Gods. And I thought, eh, it, you know, that's a good thing to get us thinking about what are some of the idols that could be out there. The article says, by God, I mean something or anything in our life that commands more loyalty, dedication, and devotion than the one true living God. And it lists seven Ameri what they call America's top gods. I'm going to do them in reverse order. Number seven in this article... And by the way, I don't necessarily agree with everything that's in the article, but I think it's, it's thought-provoking. Number seven is country or national security. Now, that's a hard one because we love our country, don't we? Of course we do. Many have fought and died for the freedoms we enjoyed. Is it possible, though, that we could elevate country over God? Well, the article thinks so. We, we have a saying, God and country. We understand that, the that that statement should never be inverted. We would never say country and God, at least no one who has sworn their allegiance to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what the article is trying to get us to see, and I think we need to think through, is that anything has the capability of being worshipped over the Lord. I, I, this hit my mind quite a few years ago. It was a 4th of July service. It was a beautiful service that day. You know how sometimes it just seems like everybody's in tune with the Lord and, when they, and we're all worshiping together and it's just beautiful. And on that particular day, we sang, we sang this beautiful hymn of the faith. Happened to be my most favorite hymn. And man, it was just beautiful. And talk about worship, it was beautiful. And then what happened next was not necessarily bad, but it did make me think. And that was that one of our 
people in our, in our family here at Grace Community sang a very patriotic song, a song that I love personally by Lee Greenwood, I'm Proud to Be an American. Beautiful song. And it was interesting, the minute he started singing it, everybody stood up. Is it wrong to do that? No, I'm not saying that. But I did catch myself, it hit my mind. Why didn't we stand up for the Lord? And so I just offer that as just an idea, uh, something to think about. The article says that, God, that country and national security can become an idol. The sixth thing they mention is money, riches, and wealth. And we all know that money can become a God and riches and wealth can become a God. Uh, we know it because it's clearly taught in Scripture, Matthew 16, 19 to 24. We know it well. It says, uh, you know, it talks about storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven because they don't, they don't, you know, moth and rust doesn't get to them and encourages us not to store up for ourselves treasures in earth. And then it says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And actually, next week, I'm going to talk about the idol of money. So I'll just leave that one with you right now and move to the fifth one in this article, which actually kind of surprised me. Um, at least the way I was raised, it surprised me. The fifth idol that it mentions, or America's top god, I should say, the fifth one is guns. Well, that's very political in our culture today. And, and I, just, I just want you to know I would fall into the same camp that many of you would fall in. I have guns. I believe in the right to bear arms. I don't like it to be political, but it is political. But I did catch myself when I read this article asking myself, how many guns does a person have to have? <laughs> well, I have two. <laughs> Sorry. But I have guns. I grew up hunting and all that kind of stuff, and I believe in that. But what came to my mind when I read this was I had recently talked to a man, this was several years ago now, and he shared with me that he has hundreds of weapons. Didn't even know how many he had. And I said, why would you have so many guns? I just thought that was just kind of interesting and a little bit ridiculous. And he said, well, it was a political thing for him. He said, I'm buying them now so that I can give them to my children and grandchildren when the government takes away our guns. <laughs> well, again, I don't want to make it political, even though I kind of have. You almost can't in this culture not make it political. But I did catch myself wondering, how much money does it take to have to buy hundreds of guns? And could that money be used for the work of the Lord? Just thinking about it, just something to think about. The, the, the fourth one they... they uh, put as a top god is the automobile. And the article says, the automobile has become a symbol of money, sex, and power. It says it's clearly a divider of the haves and have-nots. It's an idol when it becomes something more than a mode of transportation. I'm not sure that I totally agree with that because I understand some people like to restore vehicles. They like to restore them and sell them. And, you know, it's a hobby for them. I'm not sure if it becomes an idol, but it did cause me to think about a guy in our church, again, years ago. I, I'm amazed at how much older I get, how, how much everything is years ago. <laughs> um, but this guy, he had this vehicle, and it was what he told me it was worth and what he had into it was amazing. I really don't want to tell you what he told me because I was shocked. 
six figures. And, and I thought, whoa. I said, man, how often do you drive it? Almost never. I clean it a lot, and I keep it covered. I said, well, why don't you drive it? I just thought that was kind of ridiculous. And he said, well, I do drive it when the weather's just right, because I don't want anything to scar it up, you know? And he almost never drove it. So it is possible, I guess. I'm not sure if it was an idol for him, but it's something to think about. The third, the third top god they mention is fame and celebrity. And they write, fame and celebrity are, is, are largely unquestioned, even among Christians, the article said. Being famous is always better than not being, and becoming a celebrity is always something to be applauded. The article says, in this value system, seeking obscurity is dumb. Becoming less so that others might become more is irrational, suspect, and likely a sign of mental derangement. It goes on to say many parents will sacrifice virtually anything for the chance for their child to become famous, whether in entertainment, sports, academia. Have you ever saw, watched a child beauty pageant? It gets a little crazy. It's a standard of success. And I will just take a quick side street here to say, here's where you can have an idol. I think it's possible to have an idol that is alive. For some parents, they, their idols are their children. And I think we have to be careful with that. But this whole standard of success is, is not a biblical viewpoint. It's not biblical at all. In fact, Jesus speaking in Matthew 25 to 28, says he called them together and his disciples, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many." fame and celebrity. The second um, top god they mention is collegiate sports. They write, collegiate sports is, of course, a way to achieve fame, celebrity, and wealth, at least potentially. Collegiate sports have become a whole, elaborate, high-tech, profit-making system, a business, really, with big winners and many losers. And the article says, from the outside looking in, the idolatry is obvious. From the inside, even to raise the question appears extreme, unjustified, and irrational, which leads to the, what they mentioned as the top American god, professional sports. Professional sports has it all, the article says. Money, fame, sex, technology, and immense and growing economic clout. The article says it is professional sports that powers collegiate sports to the point where the line between professional and amateur is often a joke. Professional sports drives college sports. College sports drives high school sports. High school sports drives middle school sports, and so on and so forth. I actually know a family in our church years ago who left our church to go to another community because of their sports programs. 
The point that the article is making, and I think we already know, is that we struggle with idols as Americans. Everyone has priorities. Everyone has idols, although they may be different, which is why I'm trying to get us to think and ponder the question, who do I worship? Who do I really worship? It is something to evaluate if we call Jesus our Lord and if we believe that God is, a, is really alive. Now, it would be ridiculous to talk about idols with the non-believing or the unbelieving community because they would have no concept of this at all. But I don't think idol worship is just for the unbelieving community. I think we struggle with it in the believing community, in the Christian community. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you three idols, one this week, one next week, and one the following week, what I think are three of the top idols that we battle against. And the first idol that I'm going to share with you today is an idol, I'm not even totally sure if it's an idol or if it's something that drives the things that we idolize, but I do think it's an idol, but I think it's, the, it's probably the, the foundation of all the problems we have with idol worship. And I will call that idol self. Self. Could you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. By the way, this is another idol that is alive because we are alive. I think it's the top idol, self, or we might call it self-worship. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26 says this, Then he said to them all, this is Jesus speaking, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself or deny self, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Verse 26, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this passage. I've, I actually have preached on it before, and it might sound familiar to you, but there's so much that can be taken here, and there is something that's taken here that I think is incorrect, by the way, but I will tell you first that obviously when you read this, you get a picture of what our Lord did on the cross to save us from our sins, right? He was crucified. You will remember that God Himself, Jesus Christ, the man, God incarnate, Jesus Christ was beaten, whipped, spit on, had a crown, of, a crown of thorns put on his head, and then after all of that, he was made to carry his cross through town, which was common. And by the way, it wasn't the entire cross because it would be impossible for a man to carry that. We, we think it was the cross piece that they would carry through town. And you should know that crucifixion is far more than just an execution. It's also, a, a, uh, it's also humiliation. 
It is the leader of the day trying to say, nobody stands against me, and if you stand against me, you will suffer this. And so, when the man came through town with the, with the um, carrying the cross, as Jesus did, everybody would see that, you know, you don't stand against the leader of the day. And sometimes people, and I think this is a wrong interpretation, really isn't that pertinent to the message, but I think it should be said. Sometimes people use this verse to talk about the things they have to do that they don't want to do. They'll say, this is my cross to bear. Well, just for the record, Jesus bore His cross willingly. And we live our lives for Christ. It's not something we have to do. We do it because of the Holy Spirit living within us and wanting to do what the Lord has called us to do. Read about some of the martyrs who were martyred far beyond any of you, what you would be martyred, and they counted that a blessing to be able to do that. So I really think that's a wrong interpretation. I think when it's talking about bearing, you know, pick up your cross daily and follow me, I think what it's talking about is it's, it's helping us to identify with the crucifixion of Christ, that when we give our lives to Christ, we are crucified with Him. And here comes the thing that I think we miss. It's a very subtle thing, but that is when the person who was crucified as Jesus was drugged their cross through town and up onto the hill, there was something that everybody knew was true, and that was that that person will never come back. Everybody knew when, when someone came through town with the cross and went up to the hill, they would never be back. That is a picture of what salvation is. The Bible teaches us that when we give our lives to Christ, when we are crucified with Him, we accept His death and resurrection on the cross. It says that we are a new creation in Christ. It says that the old is gone, never to come back, and the new has come. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians sorry, 5, 16, and 17 says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The old is gone, and the new has come. The old self will never come back. This blows completely out of the water, this theology that is a false theology, by the way, that you can, you can give your life to Jesus Christ and just go do everything you used to do before. That is, the Bible teaches you, if you truly give your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and you can't do that. You couldn't do that if you wanted to. Um, 1 John 3.9 says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. Now, by the way, it doesn't say that you won't sin, because you can't. In, you live in a world infected by sin. We're constantly battling the sin nature. We will sin, but it says you will not continue to sin because the Holy Spirit is within you, will convict you. And so the life of a believer, different than that of one before he was crucified with Christ, if you will, the life of a believer is constantly confessing and repenting and changing. They are a new creation. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, if I was to try to, I tried to think, how do, how do I help you to understand or how do we understand this whole concept of denying self? There's a lot in that. But I think if we were to talk about denying self, I would say this, 
that denying self, the hallmark of denying self is love in the Scriptures. Now, not the mamby-pamby, you know, apple pie and ice cream, oh, I love you, and now I don't love you anymore, I love you, and you know, that kind of, it's sickening. Not that kind of love, true love as is taught in the Scriptures. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This kind of love does not seek after self. This kind of love always is aimed at others. That's how God died for, how Jesus died for us. He gave himself for us. This kind of love is never self-seeking. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says about love that it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. Now here's the problem is that if someone is worshiping self, they are not doing any of that stuff because self will always make itself okay. And the way it will make itself okay and justify its own actions by paying attention to what other people are doing. Self will constantly justify its own actions. And self will always give itself the benefit of the doubt. Self forgets what Matthew 7.15 teaches that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. So we are called to deny self daily. And I thought to help us to, to maybe kind of do some evaluation, because isn't it, isn't as Christians, should we not be evaluating always what we're doing? I thought I would give you some products of not denying self or self-worship. It really does produce something. Now, by the way, I should say the whole thing about good tree bearing good fruit and bad tree bearing bad fruits is talking about false prophets. And, and listen, if someone doesn't know the Lord, it's talking about the difference between knowing the Lord and not knowing the Lord. And, but what I'm trying to get across to us is that, yes, we know the Lord, we will bear good fruit because we are created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, but we can, even as believers, sometimes get going in the wrong direction and do the things we shouldn't do. So I want to give you some of the things to help us to spot this in our lives. Products of self-worship. The first product of self-worship is anger. Now, there's a lot that I could give you, but I'll just give you a few. Anger. Now, I know the, the theologian will say, now, wait a minute, because the Bible talks about righteous anger. Yes, it does. I just got to tell you, I, I, when I'm angry, it doesn't feel righteous to me. Well, I do know there's a, a righteous anger. We should be angry at sin and all those kinds of things. But I think most often when anger produces itself, it's not that kind of anger. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, after saying love is patient, it says about this person who has love, it says they are not easily angered. If someone is angry all the time, they might want to check because they could be involved in self-worship. Another product of self-worship is quarreling quarreling, always wanting to 
Prove somebody wrong. Always, it's like with everything that comes up, they want to quarrel about it. No matter what you say, they disagree with you and they want to tell you why they disagree with you. That is self-worship. Why? Because they want to show how much more they know than you do. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3, which, by the way, is written to believers. Very important to understand that. It says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. See, they're believers. But he says, he basically saying they're acting worldly, which is what we battle with. I gave you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it yet. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are worldly. And then it goes on to say what that looks like. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? So quarreling is a, is an, is a product of self-worship. Arguing or complaining is another one. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Why do people complain and argue? Because they feel like they're not getting what they want or they're not getting something. They feel like they're not being cared for. That's what creates that. It's a product of self-worship. And if someone is continually arguing and complaining, they may have a problem with having self on the altar instead of the Lord. Here's another one for you. People who have a problem with self-worship will also have a problem with submitting to authority. Romans chapter 13, 1 records this. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for where there is no for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, and we are called to submit to them. We do not necessarily agree with them all the time, but we still submit to them, which has to do with how we treat them and how we interact with them. And those are governing authorities as out in the world. Pay attention to Jesus and how He interacted with the governing authorities of His day. They were obviously not righteous people, but in Hebrews 13, 17, in the church it says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Folks, people watch us. They watch how we live our lives. If we worship the Lord, we give testimony to the Lord. And so often, this whole thing of, of, of um, not submitting to the authorities is so prevalent in our culture, and it has snuck into the church. I hear people sometimes say this, those guys, you know, those guys, why did they do that? I don't agree with them. could be a problem with submitting to authority. Even if, even if you disagree with them, that's fine. Just how you do it. It can be a picture of self-worship if you're not careful. It can be self-worship if you're not careful. Now, this next one, I have a whole bunch of things listed together. I actually thought, you know, how can I put this into one thing? And so I'll just give them all to you, and then I'll tell you what somebody told me after the, seconds, after the first service. 
The, another product of self-worship is sense of entitlement, self-promotion, feeling like you aren't appreciated. Someone came up to me after the service and said, it's called ego, Tim. I thought, oh yeah, well, you should preach the sermon because that's pretty good. Matthew 6, 5 says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by men. See, self-worship always wants everybody to see what they're doing, always wants to tell everybody what they're doing, or wants to let, them, let people know why they aren't being, like, I'm not being appreciated. You need to tell me thank you. Maybe we ought to spend our time thanking the Lord for what He did on the cross for us, and it might change all that. Matthew, or 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, speaking of, you know, this sense of entitlement, says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Both of my daughters at one time or another, because they're 10 years apart, I had this conversation with them when they were feeling like they weren't, you know, their rights were being infringed on. And I said, you need to understand something. In this home, you have no rights. And people used to think, they, they were like, wow, that's harsh. No, it's true. They had no rights except the rights that their mother and father gave to them. And then I went on to help them to understand that as they exercise those rights correctly, they will get more rights. And the day will come when they will have children and they will understand it even better. We don't have rights. We have only what God has given us and we serve Him. Another, you know, self-worship affects our language and you might be thinking something like cuss words and things like that, but that's not what I'm talking about. People who struggle with self-worship have words that come out of their mouth, and I'll give you four of them. I, me, my, mine. They spend a lot of time using those words. I, me, my, mine. Remember that Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. Daily because we battle with it, folks, all the time. Nobody is inoculated from it. I have these problems just as you do, but it's something we ought to, we ought to be evaluating on a day-to-day -day basis. And someone may have a problem with self-worship if they listen to a message like this and spend all their time thinking about somebody else that needs to hear it. Yes, so prone to want to pay attention to everybody else without paying attention to self. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So I ask you, who do you worship? Who do you really worship? Something for you to think about. Let's stand and I'll pray for us. If you would like to talk to someone, we'll have...
pastoral staff and their wives, elders and deacons and their wives up here, if you'd like to come up, maybe you have something that's not even related to this message today that you'd like to have someone pray with you, we're here for you. If there's something you want to talk about, maybe that was, you know, in your mind from the message, something you want to have prayer for, please come and see us. How we live our lives, folks, makes a difference, and we need to pay attention to it because the world is dying and going to hell. Father, thank you for this day, and Lord, we live, in a, we live in a country, we are grateful to live in this country where we can freely choose to worship, and we can freely choose not to worship too, Lord, but I pray that you would inspire us for as we walk out those doors today, we walk out into a world that is infected by sin. Help us to spot it. Help us to work on our lives. Help us to stay away from it. I pray it in Jesus' name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray.